This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. Are you sitting comfortably? Put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am a narrator, the voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. My guest is Win Tran. He's the chief instigator of Starry Kitchen, L.A.'s most famous underground restaurant. He and his wife ran out of their apartment in North Hollywood, and now he's the author of Adventures in Starry Kitchen, 88 Asian-inspired recipes from America's most famous underground restaurant, which is part pan-Asian cookbook, and part story of his life and crazy culinary adventures and misadventures. And this is from an interview I did with Win Tran yesterday. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. It means a lot to me, actually. I'm pretty scared about it. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I'm scared whenever I do an interview, so it always starts out that way. I'm always nervous. I'm always afraid I'm going to f*** it up. You'll be fine. But, well, you have... <laughs> Your voice, you sound like one of our most famous radio personalities here in L.A. His name is Rodney. He like, discovered all the bands like in the 80s here in L.A. or something like that. He's like literally one of the most famous radio personalities here. Really? Yeah, super. Like, they had documentaries about him, like a lot, like Guns N' Roses and all these bands were discovered by him. Like, like seriously famous. Yeah. Well, I'll see if I can live up to at least a little bit of that. I'll send you his name via email because I think I got your email address just so you can look him up and maybe listen to him. And then you be like, you know what? That guy went in such a douchebag. I'm never going to. No, that's a race. I doubt that'll be the case. And because we're taping this, be sure to use all the colorful swearing language that you normally do because it just adds so much more flavor to the interview. 
And I like to say, f*** the FCC, which is the radio equivalent of the health department. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll have at it then. So, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me on the Magical Mystery Tour. Is there a van? <laughs> I wish. There's a photograph of a bus, but that's about oh. as far as it goes. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll envision the bus and then we're inside it. Thank you. Yeah, it's the low-budget version. <laughs> more fun. So you were born in the U.S., your parents are from Vietnam, and you grew up in Texas of all places, so that seems like an odd combination. Maybe not for you, because that was your life. No, it's, it's really odd. I mean, look, I mean, life in general, even the history of, like, Star Kitchen, and, you know, you kind of just go with the flow of things. And, you know, my parents left when they were 16 or 17 years old, you know, from Vietnam, and they've never even told me the entire story. Like, they, they took refuge on an island. They dealt with pirates. And they only had to see for, like, two months. They eventually landed in Pennsylvania, which then took them down to Washington, D.C. Um, you know, my dad knocked on my mom, had me. And six months later, they heard about opportunity in Dallas, Texas. My dad was working, like, three jobs. He was working, like, as a bus boy and some other just crappy jobs. And then we moved to Dallas, Texas, where everything is much cheaper. And that is the beginning of my story. But yeah, I, I think it's just whatever they could take. You know, they're in a new country. You know, they're very young. And they're just going to go wherever they can have a possibly, you know, a thriving lifestyle. So that's what took us to Dallas, Texas. So what was it like for you growing up in Texas? Uh, you know, Texas is, is the location of you know, where I grew up in my story. I'm feeling like this is not necessarily completely unique to me, but it was hard. You know, it's not because, you know, I grew up in Dallas, which is not as southern as everyone thinks. You know, everyone does say y'all. I won't, you know, I won't deny that. And the funny thing is, I, I mean, here's the irony of this. I somehow fought that growing up. I learned English by watching TV, but now I re- realize it. I watched English watching TV, watching Dan Rather, who actually is from the South, I believe, but he didn't use those terms on broadcast television. It might be ironic that I learned it from a Southerner, but who didn't speak with a Southern accent or a Southern, like, kind of drawl. And that's who I was. But, you know, I'm Vietnamese. You know, growing up was really tough because everyone thought I was Chinese. Um, I used to get made fun of them a whole lot. I'm like, hey, you're Chinese, you're Chinese. I'm like, no, it's a totally different country, you know, like the Vietnam War. But, like, the kids don't know what the Vietnam War is. They're, like, four or five years old. I remember, like, the most embarrassing moment. And then the funny thing about it is, is like, the new Wonder Woman is out. When I was a kid, the original Wonder Woman, or the original Wonder Woman, at least to me, the Linda Carter version, was on TV, and I remember watching it. And I don't know if you know or remember, like when she used to change into from Diana to to Wonder Woman, she used to spin around with her arms kind of like held, like in a like you know kind of perpendicular to her body, and yeah. she would yeah. change. When the kids used to beat me up and make fun of me, I remember one time I would spin around, <laughs> and everyone was like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm changing into Wonder." woman and that was really 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 embarrassing and more fodder for people to beat me up and make fun of me it wasn't it wasn't easy and part of that is just growing up in a predominantly white society in dallas texas and i don't mean that from a you know whatever people think you know i use that term because i wasn't white right and i was different and you know that was the predominant society in the suburb of carrollton where i grew up which is different now it's all asian which is really strange but I rejected my own upbringing because of that. You know, I didn't want to be Asian. I wanted to be accepted like everyone else. And at that point in time, the you know, white 
know what the color that was predominant in Kelton, and I, you know, I rejected being Vietnamese, not because the food wasn't great and the culture wasn't impressive, but, you know, I just didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be left out like I was for most of my childhood. And that's not, you know, something that I, I had to come to terms with in writing the book, too, because it's led me to be so much more focused on the Asian culture now. But, oh, man, like, I, uh, it's funny. In writing a book, the hard part is when you revisit those memories, they're very nostalgic, but it unravels the same memories that you had when you were a kid, too, which is not fun. And you said that you were a pretty mellow kid, very unlike the way you grew up later to be, like this yeah. fun, kind of crazy, adventurous person that you are, or at least that you aspire to be. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is like, and I don't know if this is, comes from years of listening to Dr. Drew and listening to his psychobabble, which is amazing, from like Loveline. But, you know, I, I always say this, like, you know, sometimes as an adult, you overcompensate for the things that you lack when you were a child. And... As a child, I was very quiet. I was very shy. I never spoke out. Like I said, I didn't want to stand out either. Uh, great example of this, I was just talking to a friend of mine. I was back in Dallas, actually, just like yesterday. And we were, at one point in time, we had to take these IQ tests. But as a kid, you don't know what it is. It's like, hey, it matches image with another image. Like, why, why do you think this image matches with that one? And I guess I scored really high in the IQ test so much they put me in an advanced placement program for kids. They used to take me out of class every day, but they didn't tell me that. And I thought they were putting me on the short bus, basically, in classes. And so for three or four years, I was in the advanced placement program. I didn't know, so I didn't try. And so they deemed me not as smart as my test made me think uh, or made them think I was. So there's so many different things with my self-esteem that I didn't come to terms with that I think eventually... I was so tired of being so quiet, and you know, my parents told me to be humble all the time and basically to stay in my lane, that I just couldn't take it anymore. And my way of lashing out was just being the opposite person that I was growing up. And somehow, you know, I, I've heard the term fake it till you make it. I guess I did that. And I end up not looking back ever and getting louder and more obnoxious and more confident through just kind of learning and failing and getting back up and just trying harder. Where did that begin? You talked about when you went to the University of Texas, you met a guy named uh, Mohammed Mobutz Kashmiri. <laughs> was, was he like the, the main instigator of that or the inspiration for that? Or were you already on that path before you met him? Um, that's hard to talk about myself and not sound so narcissistic. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, don't hold generally back. Speaking, I, I, I generally speaking, I was probably on that path. You know, I was already very, very sociable. I loved talking to people. I didn't actually hold back at that point in time. But it was my friends and Mo that really saw something in me that took it to a different level. And so the story that goes in the book that you obviously brought up with Mo is that at one point in time, me and Mo, in about 1999, we were at the University of Texas at Dallas, and we were part of the student government. And if you guys don't know, the two biggest school systems in the entire nation are the UC, which is the University of California, and the University of Texas, UT system. And we built this thing called, we call it the teacher evaluation site, which is basically going to be a Yelp for professors. So when you were signing up for classes in the new semester, you could avoid the asshole professor that would always flunk you. You could avoid all those kind of jerks that are pretty, you know, every school has them, like, oh, my God, that guy or that woman, they're the worst. Do not take them. But... 
you, if you didn't know people in the previous class, you know, how would you know to avoid them? So we figured we'd build an online evaluation site that people would have as a universal tool to find it out. And when the UT system of all University of Texas, UT Austin, UT El Paso, UT Dallas, found out about this, they decided to sue us for libel and defamation, which means, you know, that they assume that the only people who review the professors were people that hated their professors and people that loved them. We were like, no, that's not the case, but we all knew that that's the case. That's the way people would view on Yelp and everything like that. We know that. But I was scared. I'd never done anything like that before, like been sued. And, you know, when, you know, I was sued, Mo, his confidence and his knowledge of lawsuits and law was so inspiring. You know, well, it was inspiring because when we got sued and we had to sit in the room with 12 people, basically the Office of General Counsel, which is all the attorneys from U- University of Texas, which are, I mean, in my head, they're very stereotypical trophy, you know, lawyers. They're like, oh, we're going to sue you. I know they didn't all talk like that. They're fucking. I just, I just imagined that in my head because I'm, I was scared shitless. But Mo had this brilliant strategy. He's like, look, Lynn, don't worry about it. I got out of control. I'm like, yeah, whatever, Mo. Like, we're going to get sued. And we go in that room, and they're like, look, we're going to sue you. You need to stop what you're doing. And Mo just drops this bomb, like, that, that silences everyone. He's like, sue us? For what? Money? We're college students. We don't have fucking money. <laughs> and, we, and I'm nervously laughing during this. I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't have money. I don't have. I don't have a career. I don't know what I'm doing in my life. And all of a sudden, a silence. Like at that point in time, like I remember Sprint commercials when long distance was a thing. They used to have this commercial it was so silent they'd drop the needle. You could hear it. it did exactly how silent that room went. And you know, all of a sudden, as I'm like slowly like, calming down from my lap, I'm like, oh shit, this is working. We're winning. And it's it's things like that in your life, and you accomplish things that you don't think you can, that builds this crazy confidence, and you think that the entire state of Texas was trying to sue us, and we won. You know, I was on the path to being crazy, but that just took me to a different level, because I got away with it, with Mo, and my friend Mo eventually ended up going to sue the state of California during a financial crisis here in favor of the students, and won. So, yeah, I, you know, Mo is the catalyst, you know, kind of set me on the crazy path. He still thinks I'm crazy because he, he doesn't do that stuff anymore. And he's like, for some reason, you haven't stopped me. I don't, I don't understand why. <laughs> so you mentioned that he thought that you took it too far. Yeah. I mean, now he has a job, but the funny thing is he says that his job is, is a union organizer now. He, he actually went to law school and ended up becoming a union organizer. So he says, you know, his version of it is like, look, I get paid to raise hell now, which is, which is great. This is fun. This is what I do. I like to raise hell. But I kept on going on a different path of, you know, I, the way I can put it is that after being so humble and so shy most of my life, when I started seeing the other side and how it could be, and I don't know, this is really hard for me to articulate on the radio, is when you realize that you can accomplish more than you believe in yourself, for me it became an addiction. Like the more I could accomplish that I thought was impossible, it made me more addicted to figure out how much more there was that I thought was impossible to figure out what I could do, which I know sounds incredibly redundant, but I just kind of, you know, like it's like any drug, and, you know, I, I, I'm sure some people don't necessarily understand it, but it's like those lace chips, right? They have that motto on lace chips, like you, can, you can't eat just one, or then it's something like that. Like, you just keep, like, when you open a bag of chips and eat it, you just completely devour it. 
and you don't realize why. That's what it is for me. Like, I, you know, I've, I've taken a bite of the chip of the apple, of the cake, whatever it is, and I love the taste of it. But I can't stop doing it. But what also happens is that you meet a lot of people in the process that are just like you or have just been like you, and they don't realize that they can do more. And the looks on their faces when you've inspired them to do something that's out of the box, and they realize the box isn't that big to pursue their dreams, it's also reciprocally inspiring for me to continue going because I feel like if I stop now on my path of entrepreneurialism and inspiration and soul-searching, that I've let down the people that I've inspired to leave their jobs and go do things or pursue a path of, you know, whatever they feel like they need to accomplish in life. You know, I know I'm going in circles, but I, I even I'm still trying to understand it. No, yeah. it makes total sense to me. And it totally fits in with what you wrote about, you know, disrupting things and f***ing shit up. I think what you were doing is, is incredibly important. I'm totally into doing that as well. I don't take it to the extreme that you do necessarily, but sometimes I do. And I appreciate it, and I know it's a lot of fun, and it just feels really good, particularly when you know that you're helping other people disrupt the, the narrow box that most people feel they're trapped in or that they believe is the way the world is, and you're disrupting that whole bullshit paradigm. And that's what I find to be really powerful and inspiring and appreciate that. I love seeing other people doing that, and I love seeing other people finding ways to bust out of those narrow boxes. Well, the funny thing about that, and to summarize for anyone listening, like I started an illegal restaurant with my wife at the back of my apartment. Then I actually became the number one Asian fusion restaurant listing in all of Los Angeles and Yelp. And we, that was eight years ago. And now I have a book, which is something that we never imagined it would happen. But to really understand the crux of all of this, like some people are like, oh my God, you're so cool. I was like, I don't think you understand. A lot of things that we do happen out of necessity. And, you know, the necessity to, you know, pay a bill, the necessity to make money, the necessity to live. But in doing that, you know, my mind doesn't work really well by playing by the rules. And sometimes when you're pushed up against a corner, and I feel like that's what's happened to us most of the time, you have no other choice than to push harder back, right? You can't be like, you know what, the rules are this. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do this. When you're up against a corner... You can't make any payments and bills and collectors are calling you and everyone's chasing you down. You have no other choice but then to you retaliate in the most extreme way possible. And I don't mean extreme in the sense that you're hurting anyone or it's haphazard as much as, you know, it makes you realize how much you, you know, how much potential you have sometimes when you're pushed up against the wall. And that's what's really happened to us. That really is the crux of why we push so hard. And then, you know, it's like two extremes, like, you push it up against the wall, then all of a sudden you're on top of the world really quickly because you push so hard and you're worried about the rules that you've gone to the top. And, you know, it's, but then, you know, it's a re the restaurant business, so it's feast for famine. So, you know, you're on top of the world for one moment and you're back down at the bottom another. And you go through that cycle while, you know, I'm sure a psychiatrist would say incredibly emotionally and, you know, mentally unhealthy. It builds this, I don't know, it, it builds a kind of, tolerance to failure that also builds a kind of confidence that you'll overcome it. You know, I've failed so many times, and I say this in the book, too, I'm, I'm the biggest f*** I know, and I don't mean that in a rhetorical, poetic sense. Like, I am. I got friends that make six figures, they go on vacations all the time, they have many families, they have many houses. 
Like, I think that's great. I don't have any of that shit. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like, but I know I have one thing that they don't have is I have a certain level of confidence, happiness that they have yet to achieve. And, and they tell me this. That's not actually me imposing it on them. I, I don't want to. But they keep on telling me, like, you know, what you're doing when it's so inspiring. It's so much fun to watch you. Like, we just want to support you any way we can. That, you know, I don't know how to stop now. And that's what makes this book so delicious, reading your story. And getting and really getting that inside feeling of who you are. Well, and also I should mention it's also a cookbook, so I was brilliant, I you. I, I appreciate that. And you may appreciate this, like you know, writing is not something that comes naturally to me. Even though I guess it does now, that more more so than I've done it. I wrote ninety thousand words for this book, and we only used ten thousand. So I tried to dig deep because so the public direction pitched me to write this book. When I quit two and a half years ago, in a very dramatic turn, we quit the business. We were at a professional high, like, we were hot shit, but we were at a completely emotional low, which is something that a lot of people can't understand. They're like, well, you're so successful, why would you quit? But the hard part about that is that if you're unhappy and what you've done to achieve that greatness has made you feel so soulless, like, that's something that is not a great feeling, and it really tears you up inside, and we quit. And three days after that, my publisher approached me, and uh, to be honest with you, and my editor will tell you this, I hope, that I told him to f*** off. And they're like, they're like, why? You know where Harper Collins? Like, yeah, I know you published Lord of the f***ing Rings. I don't give a sh. I left the restaurant business. I'm not coming back. And my version of that is, it's not because I'm unappreciative for anyone listening. I am a bad ex-boyfriend. Sounds like I'm just an asshole, which I am. I'm an idiot, asshole. But what it is is that I love too intensely. When I'm in something... I can't let go very easily. And when I do let go, I have to sever completely. I can't look back. I can't be friends with you for a very long time. Not because of you, because I just, the feelings are so intense for me that the thought of coming back is something that I, if I've stepped away, I don't want to do it. And that's why I told my publisher at the time to fuck off. A month later, I was like, hey man, you know, I'm in a really dark place. It got me at a bad time. Is that, you know, book deal still on the table? I know you want me to write about recipes, all that kind of stuff. And that's great, and I'm really inspired by that. But I'm not, you know, Nina Gardner. I'm not uh, Mario Batali. I'm not, you know, I'm not even saying that in the sense that I'm not as famous as them when I'm not. But it's also, like, that's not my thing. My thing is my story of how we came to be. And my thing is that I want this to be a book that's kind of like an illegal and underground handbook if people want to start selling food, and a lot of people do, but also a way to show people, look, this is what you're going to be up against. So either A, this is going to inspire you because none of this scares you to go for the dream of you know running a restaurant or whatever career you want to pursue, or B, it's going to scare, scare you so much and scare you straight that, you know what, this may just be a dream, and I will just sit on it until I have enough confidence to pursue it. And, you know, people always say that running a restaurant is a hard business, but no one ever shares their stories. And for some reason, I am stupid enough to share all of them with people so people can realize, you know what? You know, I always thought this guy was successful. You know what? But now I realize he's just an idiot. Well, I think it's great that you did that because I've worked in the restaurant business and I know from the inside how hard it is. I also had a girlfriend who owned and ran a restaurant while we were living together for six years and it almost killed her. So I, yeah. I know what you're talking about, and it's true. It's absolutely true. 
the restaurant business has all the cards stacked against it in terms of business in this country, which is kind of strange. Maybe if we had senators who were restaurant owners rather than lawyers, the laws would be very different about restaurants and restaurants would be on a more level playing field with other businesses. But that's just not the case. It's not. But, you know, even then, like, I, I think this book is also like a, a business handbook, too. Like, you know, Mike Smith is in the restaurant business over the last eight years. But I've, you know, met a lot of entrepreneurs in different businesses. And I'm not, not to say that I want to discount my experience, but I think anyone that starts a business of any kind that doesn't know what they're doing, but they have passion in it, you know, I think they come across a lot of similar, you know, lessons and failures. And I say, like, look, when you fail, sometimes it's easier to commiserate with other people failing with you so you can figure out how you solve it. And then realize that you're not alone in it. And, you know, that doesn't come easily for a lot of people. And it still doesn't come easily for me because, look, I'm, you know, at the same token of being a big failure, like, you know, I have an ego, right? I have pride. No, that's hard to expose yourself and expose vulnerability to other people that may want to take that down and, like, like kind of rough salt in the wound. But, you know, at a certain point in time in my life, I was like, you know, I don't know how I can solve these problems unless I actually just let people know because there might be a solution that people can offer that I don't know about. And if I don't tell them, how can they offer and help me? Now, how can I draw from other people's experiences if I'm not willing to share them? And, you know, writing this book was really cathartic. I mean, look, I know there's recipes and stuff, and those and recipes, it's funny because, you know, my other pitch about that is, like, all food has stories, and that's what it was for me. Like, you know, I would write the recipes, and I'd remember the stories of how those came to be and, you know, the ups and downs of each recipe and, you know, how it became popular, but then all the struggles it did to become something that everyone wanted. You know, every scent, every taste, every smell, which is redundant with scent, I know now, and, uh, you know, every, just the... The inception of anything that we've done has a struggle that came with it. And, you know, I'm really flattered and honored that anyone wants to either, A, make the food after hearing all about that, or B, you know, wants to hear the story about it. So, you know, thank you. Well, thank you for writing the book. You talked about food porn and how Asians created it and that you love food porn and that that was part of what inspired you to get into the whole Starry Kitchen adventure. <laughs> well, and I, you know, in the book, I, I mean this too, I think I wrote that I'm not a, I'm not an old straight man because I look at more food porn than actual porn. <laughs> um, and that's how much I love food porn. I mean, look, you know, I'm, I'm a guy, I have some testosterone and I'll be like, Oh my God, there's boobies. Oh my God. Look at that cake. Look at the boobies. Look at the cake. Look at that fried chicken. Oh my God. I'm in the middle I won't say that Asians actually invented food porn, but it was very, you know, prevalent in Asian culture. I remember, you know, I, when I was growing up in Dallas, I was dating my wife at the time, and one of her uncles from Hong Kong brought a friend, and he had this professional, like, camera. This was a, and no digital. It was all 35 millimeter and 24 exposure. And we went to, I would go out to this fancy Chinese dinner, and I remember him taking pictures of the dishes, right? And that wasn't the first time I ever saw that. But it's kind of prolific. I'm like, oh my God, this guy with a nice camera does what my parents do with a shitty camera. They take pictures of you know, food when they see it. And, you know, when you are of any ethnicity, I think, growing up, at some point in time, you start, you know, meeting people of that same ethnicity. And when I realized that other people and other Asians love taking pictures of food, that was 
you realize other people, you know, have a similar, you know, experience, that's how I realized, oh, my God, Asians love taking pictures of food. And what really happened was my wife grew up in America, but she didn't grow up Asian-American. She grew up more Asian. And I realized this when I was, you know, dating her because I'd make jokes about, like, Alf and Scott Bayo and all these things, like, who's the boss, you know, things that grew up in the 80s. My wife was like, what? Like, you don't know Alf? Alf eats cats? You don't know about him? Um, and, you know, when we started, you know, cooking out of our home, my wife would take pictures of all the dishes she was making and post it up on Facebook, but not because she was a food blogger, because also this was before that time, or any kind of inspiration for that. She was more like, oh, my God, here's another pretty dish I made. I'm going to take a picture of it and post it up, like a nation person. And that ended up being the crux of our business, like sharing pictures of our food and other food we're eating, and it seems like the new food porn world order is moving that direction. And, you know, food porn as a hashtag or as a thing became the prevalent, like, search or prevalent, like, thing people were searching on the Internet. I think at one point in time, like, food porn, like, out-searched, like, porn, like, six times over or something. At one point, I don't even remember what the most specific is. But, you know, I like looking at pictures of food, and it seems to be that other people do, too. And it makes them salivate and makes them want to eat it and makes them want to show up. And... That really helped us build our crazy history of Starry Kitchen. Yeah, food porn works. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to call it food porn as well, because I love food, and when I see pictures of beautiful, delicious-tasting food, it stirs up the same kind of sensual desire that, that sex does. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, food can be incredibly orgasmic, and I don't necessarily mean that even as a euphemism, like, it's funny, like, you don't know necessarily that you're used to mediocrity, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, until you've had something that you're familiar with but is better than any version of it you had, right? When it's mm-hmm. so mind-blowing mm-hmm. that your eyes really roll back like you're about to climax, mm-hmm. right? That, that is the most revealing kind of moment, like, when you realize, oh, my God, food can be that much more... You know, kind of sensual, that much more impressive than I I believe, and you're like you stop everything, right? Like literally, you like your body convulses, like you're about to climax, and like, oh my god, holy shit, I have not had a corn dog, and you know that <laughs> corn dog that may that may be you know, like people are like, oh my god, you just took me out of it. You now talking about a corn dog, but that's but there there can be a corn like I worked with a French chef that mm-hmm. made a corn dog that made people do that. Mm-hmm. Like, you made it with, like, a, um, it was like a boudin blanc, which is like a French, you know, white sausage. And he made a special kind of cornmeal for the outside of it. And he made a dip made out of, like, a lobster bisque. And I still remember people eating it because we were partners at the time doing, like, this pop-up. And that wasn't even my favorite dish on the five courses we made. But when people ate it, I'm like, oh, my God. I've never had a corn dog like that in my life. And these are people that are pretty fancy, by the way. These are... So we're doing like a fancy pop-up, but that familiarity with the corn dog and then having something elevated like that, oh man, it was, it was great to see that though, because that's, that's what food is for me. Like you can take the things that you grew up with and then make it in a way that people will never expected, and then it becomes a memorable experience for them, so much so that, you know, A, they want to tell other people, B, they want to experience it again, and C, if they never get either one or it doesn't get made ever again, they'll never forget. And, you know... Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, look, popping a cherry. Who doesn't who doesn't yeah. forget? Yeah. You know, even even if it wasn't pleasant, 
Because it's not always, you know, losing virginity is a very momentous occasion, not always celebratory. I, I actually, I would say, I'd say most times not celebratory for most people, but, you know, which is now taking away from the experience of how a dish can actually elevate it. But, you know, it's, it's a fun thing when you give people something that they have to do out of utility because, you know, we have to eat for sustenance. When it's something that rises above that and gets people to kind of take notice, it's incredibly fulfilling when you see that. Yeah, and sometimes the simplest foods can be done in an incredibly delicious way. I, I grew up in New York City, so I got to eat simple street food that was done fabulously well, or at least I thought so. But that's, that's the thing, that, and that's the truth. Sometimes it's the simplest things in life that can create the most effect. And it's like, a, like let's say it's just a grilled cheese sandwich. And people are like, well, how do you fuck up a grilled cheese sandwich? Like, you know, the funny thing is, it goes both ways. Like, it's easy to fuck up the simplest things in life. But someone that just has a touch for it, like, you know, whether it be the butter on the bread and the cheese and getting the right melt and, you know, getting the right crust on the bread and, you know, taking notice of what kind of bread it is and, you know, maybe it's on a seasoned grill that they don't, you know, that, you know, there's different sciences to it, but maybe they've been cooking grilled cheese on this griddle for 30 years, so now it has all this flavor of cheese that can't be created, you know, just out of thin air. And ultimately, it's, it's someone's love for what they're making that you can really taste and that is not a joke. Like, if two people make a dish and one person loves it more than the other, you can taste the difference of it because someone puts a lot of care into it. And, you know, you may not understand that person's love for that dish they made for you, but you understand when your body reacts and, like, holy crap, mm-hmm. holy shit, this is really good. And, you know, and honestly, I, I have fancy chef friends. I don't go to most of the restaurants because that's not what I crave. And I love them. And I love the creativity that they bring to the world and to top chef and to TV. But man, sometimes I just want to bowl of You know, I'm Vietnamese. That's what I want. And it was excellent. And the broth is like clean and clear and it's clean tasting, but it's really nourishing. And the noodles are clean just right. It's so not powdery and the meat cut just right. So it's not too rough. And all that comes together is so all the herbs and a little sriracha and a little hoisin. It, it's great when, you know, those simple dishes either A, whisk you to a memory of your childhood which is what comfort food is, right? It's mm-hmm. something you grew up with, and it's simple. And it's beautiful, and you're like, oh my God, I remember that moment when I was with my mom, and we were just eating at the dinner table, and, and that was just really special to me. Like, that's, that's also the best thing that happens with food, where it kind of makes you regress into childhood, and it's beautiful. Mm. I'm speaking with Wing Tran, author of Adventures in Starry Kitchen, 88 Asian-inspired recipes from America's most famous underground restaurant, which is part Pan-Asian cookbook and part story of his life and crazy culinary adventures and misadventures. As you were talking about that, that reminded me of the movie Tampopo, which I'm sure you've seen, which just totally turned me on. I remember as soon as the movie was over, I was just dying for a bowl of noodle soup like that. (laughs) And of course, there wasn't a noodle shop around in the town that I saw the movie. Because that was up here in Vermont, which at the time didn't have any good ethnic food at the time. And I was spoiled. And also that reminded me, you were talking about grilled cheese. And there was a movie I saw once where this girl made a grilled cheese sandwich on her ironing board with a steam iron. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's the thing. And like, actually, there was, I remember there was like a concept that did. That was their main thing. They would do grilled cheese on steam irons. You know, 
that comes out of necessity too. Like, you know, there's something fun about being broken in college or being broke in general, and you come just really creative on how to make things. Uh-huh. How to, you know, again, and that's something that's beautiful about, I think, life, and I think hopefully people understand about our story. Like, when things come out of necessity, the amount of creativity that comes from that and the story behind it, it's just a wonderful thing. And now, I mean, a lot of people do this same iron grilled cheese because it's kind of fun and quirky. But it's fun to see that and be like, oh my God, that's creative. And you know, that's, that's, I think that's also what makes the world go round too. When people see creativity and doing something that they haven't realized, it makes them realize, oh man, maybe I'll do something like that one day too. Like, to stay iron grilled cheese. Maybe I'll make like a, a steak on, on the hood of the car or something. <laughs> right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, I experienced that when I was in high school. I, I had just moved up here to Vermont, and I was living out in the woods. I didn't have a car. My father worked all day. So I was stranded out in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. But, you know, I had to eat, and there was food. And so I got creative in the kitchen, and I, used, I started making incredibly delicious things with what I had. And it was creativity out of necessity, out of boredom, out of a need to survive and feed that creative urge but isn't that in a way there's, there's memories are so nostalgic right it's like a simpler time where you didn't overthink things mm-hmm. and in my life i try to return back to especially because i have a child now and you know it's easy to overthink and try to impose all these lessons but sometimes it's about those simple experiences that make the most impact. And, you know, I'm 39 now. When I hire cooks, I'll say I have a lot of bad habits, you know, and I'm trying to unlearn them so they can just be good cooks. And I try to apply that to myself, too, in, in life. But, you know, I have 39 years of experience, so, you know, generally speaking, my experiences will tell me, if this happens, you can go A, B, or C. But sometimes it's more like, hey, we're at this point in time, what do we do? Like, I don't know, let's just push forward and see what happens. I kind of want to teach that to my, my son. So then he can have a better experience in life and not be an asshole like me. And that connects with another thing that you wrote in the book, that it's better to have a cook who cares about what they're doing than somebody who has experience or is a, a quote-unquote good cook. That, that, that was just my opinion. Because I feel like... I feel like if you care, you also have more aptitude to learn. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the thing about it is if you think you're hot sh- the problem with that is it comes with an arrogance that restricts someone from learning anymore. And my favorite chefs that are really inspired are, like, there's this guy named John Sedler who used to be here in L.A. He's now back in New Mexico. He's, like, 60 years old now. And he cooks, like, Southwestern food. He still travels to, like, Mexico and other places to learn more, to learn more techniques, to be inspired by other flavors. When I realized that he was... You know, I, I don't mean this to be ageist, but when he was that old, but still realizing that he doesn't know shit and there's so much more to learn, that was really eye-opening to me, right? Like, you know, he's a good cook, but he realizes that the world is still so big that he's never going to conquer it. And when I work with cooks, you know, that think they're hot shit, the problem is they're too focused on showing off than they are in making really good products. Right, they care more about it. themselves than what they're doing. For, for somebody yeah. else. Yeah. And they're, not, but they're also not as concerned with teaching other people, you know, and learning from each other than they are just be like, look, this is that. You know, and I, I'm a type A personality, so I, I understand the competitive spirit of that, but that is the negative side of that. 
is that you, A, think you're better than everyone, or B, you want to be better than everyone, versus just being a unit, being as a whole, you know, picking up everyone up and being greater than you you or any one person on, in that team. And, you know, also the learning curve is much faster for someone that has no experience but wants to learn. You know, they've learned so much more, and they're more apt to trade notes with you, and they're also less apt to be sassy with you. It's like, you know, I, I'm a pretty direct person, and I tell my employees, too, like, look, you may not understand this, so for those that understand, I hope you appreciate it. For those that don't understand, I hope you will take this into consideration that if I'm giving you direction, no matter how blunt I am, that's because I care. For people that work for other people, when they stop giving you direction, what they're doing is they don't care anymore, and they're basically allowing the bus to run over you so that you get fired yeah. because they just can't deal with you anymore. Right. And, and I tell them, look, you're never going to outlast me because I care too much. So either A, you get it and you shut me the fuck up, or B, you quit. So, you know, the decision's yours because I'm not going to fucking stop caring because this is my baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to get into some of the adventures of your cooking adventures. I'd love for you to t- talk about the marijuana dinner nights that you did and where the idea came from and how you pulled them off without getting busted and, <laughs> and how much planning and preparation you put into them. Oh, my God. They're... Well, let's say this first. The marijuana dinners are some of the most stressful events I've ever put together. But it's because, you know, I live in California. Or as people call California outside of California, crazy California. Because we have legalized weed. But, you know, we're not as good as Colorado. They they, they got all full on. So we're trying to get... There. Actually, we're out there now. We finally voted in. Yes, the marijuana dinners... So we were working on this French chef, Laurent Canu, otherwise known as LQ. And... Uh, he had lost his restaurant about six months before that. And I was like, look, we're friends. Um, no one's going to expect it. You should pop up in my lunch restaurant and do French dinners. And let's just have a lot of fun. And he's like, okay, baby. And that's my best impression of him. He's like French and, you know, openly, you know, gay and amazing chef. And at one point in time, we did a 19-course white truffle menu, which is crazy. You know, to do 19 courses of any one ingredient. And... Once we accomplished that, I was on just, like, this contact high. Again, it was, like, a very physical thing for me. Like, once I accomplish a lot, I want to accomplish more. So we were like, oh, my God, we did this 19 course for our menu. People showed up. We didn't lose money. Holy shit. We're on top of the world. We should do something else. And all of a sudden, he just really just burst out. Hey, baby, I've been thinking about cooking with marijuana. I'm like, holy shit. That is it. We're doing a marijuana dinner. He was like, oh, no, baby. I was just kidding. That's just a joke. Like, no, 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 no. That's it. And that's where the marijuana dinner came from. And the other cooks, if people don't know, most cooks in the restaurant business tend to, the nice way of putting it is they burn the candle at both ends, mm-hmm. but the not-so-nice version of But the reality is that they do a lot of drugs. Yeah. And most cooks, after a very hard day, a 12-hour, 14-hour shift, being on the seat, being in front of the burner, you know, cooking all day long, they like to smoke pot. So... I mentioned this, and all the cooks in the kitchen turn around like, hell yeah! And, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of ideas come from not because the leader wants to take it on me, being the leader, because the people underneath you are inspired by that. And that's also reciprocally inspiring, because when, when they responded, I was like, you know what, this is going to be a good time. Because, not because the marijuana makes me relax, but because my cooks are just as inspired to try this as much as I am. 
And we started testing and talking about the food and marijuana. And, you know, we started infusing it with Chinese herbs as well. So the first marijuana dinner, of which I've done three, so that clarifies that, the focus was Chinese herbs and marijuana, basically taking things that are, you know, medicinal. You know, it's marijuana it does have medicinal effects, and that does have a medicinal history. And taking those things that normally don't have very good flavor, but infusing them food so they do and have medicinal, you know, um, characteristics as well. So, like, with the marijuana, our main thing was that we wanted to lower the THC levels as much as possible. THC being the main compound in marijuana, when activated by heat, gets people high. So that people can actually enjoy the food. Plus, in California, where there are dispensaries almost every corner, dispensaries being places you can buy marijuana legally, people get high for a lot less. So our, our intent was not to get people high, because it's California, you can get marijuana anywhere. Our intent was to give people an experience that they've never come across themselves and something that was elevated beyond a pot brownie. And, like, my favorite dish that we created was a monkfish cheek um, poached in a cannabis of coconut oil. And cannabis, for anyone that doesn't know, cannabis is another technical land for marijuana. So it was cannabis infused in coconut oil. And then we poached monkfish cheek in that. And then we put it on a bed of rice kanji, which is basically rice porridge, that we made in the episode to cannabis pesto. We made pesto out of cannabis leaves and folded it in and put that monkfish cheek on that. It was so good. And that was only half of the planning. The other half was I knew people would show up to a marijuana dinner because of the word marijuana in general. So I figured I'd make it an experience that never to be repeated ever again. So I was like, you know what? You know, most of these people are coming to a marijuana dinner and paying 150 bucks to come. Probably haven't done anything that illegal in their lives, to be honest with you. Right, they're affluent now, and they're willing to spend for things, the greater things in life, the nicer things in life. So, like, my thing was, like, then come to my world. Come into the underground, the legal stuff that I've done, and let's be all be in cahoots together. So I kind of built so many things around the marijuana. One, I made people take a personality test. Because um, I didn't want all potheads. I didn't want all the rich people. I wanted to make it the perfect dinner party where people actually had different things to offer than... Hey, man, let's get high. Which is great. That's fun. But, you know, it's nice to meet new people from different walks of life and get to know them. So that was one. So every personality test was kind of crazy. I mean, like one of the questions I had asked is, if you were a potato chip, what would you be? You know, the point of that personality test was to see who would actually take the effort to give it a creative answer that would expose what kind of personality it would be. They'd be like, oh, that person would be interesting. Then one of the questions was, so, you know, let's, let's be honest. If you could do anything, you know, to get the marijuana dinner, what would it be? Someone was like, dude, I'm rich. I'm like, fuck that. I don't, I don't want a guy like that. You know, we don't need people like that that buy their way in. That's, that's not the point. The point is to meet really interesting people. So that was that. I built a whole thing about there was like a two-point verification where we would pick people up. It wouldn't be right in the place where we're having a dinner. And the story was based on a, a Simpsons episode where Bart and the kids somehow steal a car and they make an excuse to go on a road trip, and they tell the parents they're going on a grammar rodeo. And for anyone that hasn't caught that, as a play on the spelling bee. So it's, instead, it's a rodeo of grammar, and they go on this crazy trip. So I was like, you know, the story for the marijuana dinner was, hey, everyone, we're going on a grammar rodeo. And the reason for the story, too, was just in case we got caught, we had to have a story of how they came to the marijuana dinner and what they paid for and so what I told people was, you didn't pay for a marijuana dinner. You paid for a grammar rodeo. And 
you can stay around for the optional marijuana dinner. So it's been being optional. That's something that people opted in for, and that's also something that they didn't exchange funds for. So it would hopefully lead us to a gray area of getting prosecuted if that were the case. On top of that, we also made these waivers that people had to sign. The waivers are pretty comedic, um, and the waivers honestly were not to waive their responsibility. It was for one thing alone. It was to point the responsibility to me. Because someone still has to take responsibility. You can't just be like, no one's responsible. Everyone's in the same room eating, you know, marijuana-infused or laced dishes. No one's responsible. I was like, look, I accept responsibility. I will be the kingpin of this thing. I will happily go to jail for everyone to have a good time. And I also had lieutenants. I was like, look, if I actually go to jail, here are the instructions of what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to out the mole if there's a mole. Here's where you're going to move the dinner. Here's the person that's going to bail me out post-bail. Here's the lawyer you're going to call that will actually represent me. And it's been a really fun experience. Everyone from the people planning, people cooking, the people coming to dinner, everyone was part of the illegal operation. And it was a fun night. You know, people came in. You know, we asked them not to get high at all during the dinner. They would eat. They would share the stories. Jonathan Gold, who's the foremost food reviewer in Los Angeles, happened to come to dinner. And he's a big celebrity in the food scene. But on top of that, the editor-in-chief of High Times Magazine which is something I didn't, I didn't grow up on pod culture in high school, but is a publication for anyone that loves, you know, marijuana, reads. And then she usurped John and Gold to being the biggest celebrity in the room. And uh, there's so many layers that I can't even give you in a short one-hour radio interview, to be honest, Tonyo. But it was a lot of fun, and it was crazy. And the way we didn't get caught, I think part of it was that I already had a reputation of being a jokester by this point in time. I'm sure kids don't use the word jokester. I don't actually use it. I don't, that's the first word that comes to mind. I, I, I joke around a lot. I do crazy shit. And we announced that the dinner was on April Fool's Day, and we did it through Eater LA, which is the biggest like food blog in Los Angeles about anything happening in the food scene. And, you know, everyone just thought it was a joke. Everyone was like, no, there's no way that, and I wear a banana suit, there's no way that banana suit wearing Yahoo is doing a marijuana dinner on April Fool's Day. That's totally a joke. And then three days later, my face lands on the front of the Saturday section of the Los Angeles Times. And everyone was like, holy that was not a joke. That guy actually did that. Oh, my God, why didn't I go to that? And then, of course, two days later, I had planned this. We announced to 300,000 people that we're doing a second marijuana dinner, coincidentally, on 420. And it was a crazy time. Oh, I never even talked about how we didn't get caught. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, mm-hmm. we, well, we did keep under wraps. I did do background checks. I went to people's Facebook pages and to see if there were going to be narcs. And I did do one thing that was unique. At that point in time, Foursquare was really popular. Now I'm in a swarm. And I knew people would check in via social media. So I created a fake check-in somewhere else in the city. So I was like, hey, look, guys, no social media, but you can only do one thing. If you do check-in, check into this listing. If the cops are looking at social media, which I think they do now, they'll point them to a different location on the other side of the city. So then we'll never hopefully get caught. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't big enough. Maybe everyone thought it was a joke. Maybe I actually went through the right measures. Like, my cooks didn't even know what they were cooking at until the day of. Like, you know, I did approach this as if we didn't want to get caught and we wanted to keep under wraps, partially for the experience for the people cooking, partially because we didn't want to get busted, and even though I was ready to get busted. so And also my French chef, he was like, I don't want to get deported. I'm like, you're already naturalized. I can't get deported, which... Honestly, in this day and age, 
in the new era that we're living in, uh, you get deported from almost everything. So who knows? Maybe we could do one more story. Um, take your pick between how you discovered Pandan Kaya in Thailand or your journey in pursuit of the legendary Macanese pork chop sandwich. Oh, oh. You know what? I'm, I'm going to go on to... Oh, man, those are two. Oh, you picked a really good one. I'm going to go with the prostitute. Okay. Which is, which is Pandan. So I never feel like prostitute. So before I was a foodie, I worked in film. And this is the story of how I discovered Pandan and Taya, which is a, it's a coconut egg custard that people in Southeast Asia eat. And, and, but in Thailand, they dip like white bread in. And it's so just delicious and it's creamy and rich. But the first time I had it, I was looking at the film, and I just left the oldest and largest talent agency in the business, William Morris. And for anyone that's ever watched like Entourage, like, you no, know, I worked for people like Ari Gold. That is not a joke. People are like crazy like that in the film business. And I worked with a film called Journey from the Fall. It's a Vietnamese language film about the fall of Saigon. And we got invited to the Bangkok Film Festival. And if you've ever been to Thailand, you know, tourism is huge there. So huge that you have to go to like a four-year college to get licensed as a tour guide. And that is not a joke. It is a real thing. And it's supported by the CAT, which is the Tourism Authority of Thailand, which is the largest like financial entity in all of Thailand. And they, they put up the, the Bangkok Film Festival. And they fly us out. They put us up in a hotel, which I later realized was an expat hotel. And people argue with me on this, but I'll, I'll tell you my opinion about the term expat. When you're in Asia, expats usually mean white people that want to sleep with Asian women. I, I know it's other things. I know it can be other things. But in Asia, you go to an expat, like, part of town. It's always, like, all these white guys. It's all these Asian ladies. I'm like, wow, what is happening here? But, you know, whatever. So we are put up in this expat hotel. And the reason I know this and realize this, one time I go to the basement of the hotel, because I'm just walking around, because I just wonder all the time. And I see this club. I'm like, oh, my God, there's a club in my hotel. This is strange. And I look in. I'm like, oh, my God. There are, like, 30 women to every one guy. And then it dawns on me, oh, my God, those are prostitutes. That's why the ratio is so good here. Amazing. I'm like, oh, my God, this is an expat hotel because there's all these prostitutes, 30 prostitutes, every one white guy in this hotel. That's why we're here. So, and I'm strange because I just see that. I'm like, I, I laugh at myself, and then I go on with whatever I got to think and go to eat dinner. And the next day, for some reason, I'm bored. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go into that club. I'm so fascinated. And arrogantly, I invent a sport I call fishing for hookers. I'm going to re- reiterate that's arrogant. I know this. But I'm young. I'm also Asian, so I'm like almost 30 by this point in time. But when I shave, I look like I'm 18. So that's where they're pushing fishing for hookers. I did came from because I knew that I would be like fresh prey you know, for all the hookers. I'm like, oh, my God, here's a young boy. He wants to pop his cherry. So that was my fishing for hookers. Um, I was bait. I would go in, and I, all of a sudden I get accosted by all these prostitutes. And they're like, oh, sexy time. <laughs> no. And I'd like, like, set them free. Like, I, like you know, hook, line, sinker, set them free. And, and it was really fun to get attention from all these beautiful prostitutes. But there's one prostitute. I don't know why, piqued my curiosity, she just would not give up. And, you know, she did the universal sign of, like, you know, fornication, she took her left hand and made like a, I guess the shape of what you would think is a vagina, and the right hand is a finger, and she would, you know, put it in and out, like, hey, do you want to, you know, 
you want to fornicate? That's not what she says, but that's obviously what she's implying. And I was like, no, I'm not horny, but I'm hungry. And I use the universal sign of hunger where I you know, rub my tummy and then I tilt my head like a cute kid. And she, she was very offended by that. <laughs> and, and she was like, no, horny. I'm like, no, hungry. And she's like, fine, whatever. And I was like, look, if you don't find a John tonight, I'll take you out to dinner. If you can take me to a place I can't find myself. It's like, whatever. And uh, I was like, okay, whatever. And then the night went on, and the club closes. And I actually go try to find a girl, which, by the way, upon reflection, I don't know how I found this girl, because there were literally like 300 prostitutes in this place. And at a certain point in time, they all look the same, not because they're all tied and I can't tell the difference, but it's like push-up bras, like short, short skirts, low-cut shirts. I'm like, oh, my God, like, these prostitutes are all the same. How do you pick one from the other? I found her. And... She does one last attempt. She's like, hey, look, you want to have sexy time? I'm like, no, I want to have eating time. She's like, fine, let's go. And we go out, get a tuk-tuk, which is the name for, like, the little, like, three-wheel taxis in Thailand. We go to a district in Bangkok that I can probably never find ever again. And we sit down, and she orders a meal. And, you know... He orders this thing called, so in Thai, they call it, and I'm going to butcher this, they call it Karampang Sankaya, which is kaya toast or kaya bread. And it's a green. So Pandan, for anyone that doesn't know it, is a Southeast Asian leaf that's a little bit like vanilla. It's used for sweet and savory, and it turns everything green. That's a little nuttier. And it's important to understand that because vanilla isn't indigenous, the big SAT word. It's not indigenous to the region of Southeast Asia. So this is the closest thing to vanilla you're going to get. And, you know, they infuse it into a coconut custard, and egg custard. And we have a recipe for this in the book. For anyone that wants to actually buy the fruit, not listen to my uh, bullshit stories. And it's, again, it's rich and creamy and custardy. And all they do is dip white bread in this. But the funny thing about this entire situation is we are sitting here for dinner. And she doesn't speak a lick of English. I don't speak a lick of Thai. But for anyone that's traveled, you'll understand this. For anyone that hasn't traveled very much, you may not understand this, but when you want to communicate with someone that doesn't speak their own language and you allow yourself to be, you know, vulnerable enough to figure it out, you will figure out conversation. And that may seem very redundant and it makes no sense, but it does. You know, like, I'm sitting at dinner with this lady, you know, we have to talk. It's really awkward. Like, you can't just sit there and stare at her. And part of what happens in this conversation is I figure out that she has a South Korean boyfriend, and her, both her South Korean boyfriend and her mother in a small village outside of Bangkok doesn't know she's a prostitute. And I am so fucking floored when I finally figure this out. And I'm also eating my favorite dessert I've ever had in my life. So it was an incredibly surreal experience of... One of the most honest conversations I've ever had with any person I've ever known or not known. And this woman who prostitutes as a profession, you know, to make money to send to her mom back in her village and can't share with the people around her that she's a prostitute. I, that's when I realized how arrogant I was in fishing for hookers. That's how I realized how arrogant I was, a privileged American, you know, growing up in a lower middle class society and how thankful I was that she was to share that with me share my favorite dessert I've ever had. And then years later, you know, in honor of that experience, we created a dish, which is a churro with a coconut custard cream that you dip in. 
And I wish I could tell you what she looks like. I don't know. I wish I could tell you how she's doing. I don't know that either. But I think that was one of those experiences never to be repeated ever again in my life. And I'm so thankful. And it's experience like that that realize how privileged we are as people. And, you know, at the same token, she wasn't necessarily happy, but she accepted her situation. And I, you know, I did have a hero complex kind of, you know, for one moment, like, how do I help this girl? But I was powerless. And I wish I could have done something for her. But at the end of that night, you know, I hugged her. She didn't proposition me again, I think. I'm pretty sure she didn't because it was pretty, it was a pretty draining conversation to have. She went her way and I went my way and, you know, that was 2005, I think. And I'll never forget her. Mm. I love that story. And there are quite a few really fascinating stories in the book. It was a fun book to read, and I love your writing style. It was very conversational, and there's a lot of great recipes in there, which we didn't even get to talk about. This has been a blast. I've really enjoyed talking with you so much. I did, too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that was Wing Tran. He's the creator of Starry Kitchen, an infamous underground illegal restaurant he and his wife ran out of their apartment in North Hollywood. And he's the author of this new book, Adventures in Starry Kitchen, 88 Asian-inspired recipes from America's most famous underground restaurant, which is part Pan-Asian cookbook and part story of his life and crazy culinary adventures and misadventures. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Hello, everyone. It's time for poetry. I submit to you the following. It's entitled, I Eat With Gusto, Damn, You Bet, by one Jonathan Richmond. When I eat like I do it, I use not fork nor spoon, no grace nor culture to it, when I call my own tune. For I eat with gusto, damn, you bet, a regular canine cruncher. Except, truth be told, I'm sloppier yet than many a dog food muncher. I eat a pound, I eat a ton, and no, there ain't much I cuts up. And while I'm having merry fun, bystanders puke their guts up. The FBI sent someone by who handles health affairs. I had not finished my cream pie when he chanced up the stairs. Why did he turn the other way? Why did he leave so quick? Will he come back another day? Did something make him sick? I eat with gusto, damn, you bet. A regular doggy diner. No, don't bring me napkins, waiter, sir. Just brings up trash can liner. Whilst wandering by a juice bar, I spied a tempting beverage. Since I would have been last in line, I used my fearsome leverage. For in my pocket was some food which I took from its wrapper. The patrons watched it being chewed and of course headed for the crapper. For I eat with gusto, damn, you bet. For gusto, I'm the boss. For yea, my nose, it is in the salad. And lo, my chin, it is in the sauce. I eat with gusto, damn, you bet. 
We're sailing round the Cape. Kill all him, said the bosun. There must be no escape. One sunny day in Paris, an elegant cafe. A phone call there, a phone call here, and the gendarmes took me away. I said, uh, make spasi see. I said, uh, make say. They said, such eating, it is criminal. In crime, it does not pay. For I eat with gusto, damn you bet. My banner, yea, unfurled. My shirt is covered with mustard and my hair with ketchup curled. Goodbye to Egypt, Greece, and Rome, the ancient world, goodbye. May squalor be my summer home and filth be my necktie, for I eat with gusto, damn you bet. Oh, and uh, I eat with gusto, damn you bet, my country tis of thee. I eat for social progress, I eat for victory. Somebody died who watched me eat in a restaurant one spell. He woke up and saw me eating beans and knew that he'd gone to hell. For uh, he eats with gusto. Damn, we bet. They're calling from the south. They want to stop my gusto. They want to close my mouth. You eat with gusto. Yeah, that's great. Now let us off this bus. Wait a minute. I haven't finished eating up stuff yet. We'll call you. Don't call us. you 
Up next, a tribute to our new commander-in-chief. Last week, you, some of you may remember hearing about the furor over the latest production of Julius Caesar from the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is from the Farsine Theater, something they did a few decades back. Freddie Burns, <laughs> and welcome to Overeducated Television. <laughs> yes, welcome to Escaping from the Declining Fall of the Roaming Umpire. Thank you. Part 3, Series 4, Program 6, Chapter 13, Pages 162 to 101. <laughs> BC. <laughs> Thank you. As we join our program today, we find Senator Fletcher's Prolongus <laughs> anxiously pacing the hall of the great cafeteria <laughs> as he nervously awaits the imminent arrival of the mad debauched emperor, Kaluga. Excuse me. <laughs> Listen carefully now, please, because we use ten words where one would suffice. <laughs> I am the Senator Fletus Prolongus. And I am waiting for the Emperor, or someone like him. For he comes here today, here to the hall of the great cafeterium to declare himself number one. And that makes the rest of us number two him. And that's a lot of crap. Oh, this empty city of new roaming, which grumbles like my guts with acid indecision. And where's our chief, our chef, that candy butcher, Umpara Kaliuga? He's with his Dutch kitchen cabinet, preparing to tenderize the people's brains, serving up half-baked plots and playing under the table for rare and bloody steaks. And if we beef, he gives us the bird, that chicken, and we must eagle crow. It's a raw deal. Here comes the ump. All hail, Kaluga! Hail, Kaluga! Hail, Kaluga! Hail, Kaluga. hail and rain forever! <laughs> You're the only one of my so-called loyal senators who has seen it fit to fit me here today. Where are all the others? Where is Locus Parentis? Uh, he could not get permission to come, you get. Where is Coetus Interruptus? Uh, he had to pull out early. So you are the only one, are you? Well, yes, perhaps the others don't know you well enough, Yugi. To know, know, know you is to loathe, loathe, loathe you. And they do. And they do. And I do. And he does. And we do. And, and they we do. do. And we do. All right, stop it. I know they're loafers. Let them sleep. I've heard of late, dear Umbra, that you've had difficulty sleeping. Ah, yes, tis true, tis, 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 true, tis too true. I spent the rest of this night, I staggered back and forth between the bedroomium and the upchuckium. Something I ate at the orgy last night didn't agree with me. Uh, 
Well, I've heard it bruited about in the streets by the brutes and the people who wear brute. <laughs> that you conduct yourself like a fool and they, the lambs, must sing along. Ba, ba, ba. They need to sing along. They need songs and happiness. And you know what I've done? Oh, no, no, what, what? I've written them a new song. It will be number one. Of course, it'll be number one. He won't allow any others. Oh, come on. I call it Do the Hun. Do you want to try it? Do the Hun. Let's try it out, Jeff. Oh, And then I-I-V. Attila was sitting on his hairy throne. Who's the hun? I'm the hun. Who's number one? I'm number one. I said, well, come on, boys. Let's hit the road to Rome. But he's the hun. I'm the hun. He's number one. I'm number one. I'll do the hun. It's what the latest rages do the hun. Come on, hun. It's from the Middle Ages. No other dance can touch it. No other holds a candle. Well, I learned it from a Visigoth who learned it from a Vandal. Do the hun. It's what the latest rage is. Screw the hun. He's in his middle ages. No other girl gon' touch him. They'd rather use a candle. Well, I learned that from my mother-in-law who says to marry a Vandal. Do the I had to rewrite that schlager, Yugi. You wrote it back in 50 BC. What's the matter with the 50s? I love the 50s. Oh. I'm 50-50. That's because you're a schizophrenic. Who said that? I did. How dare you speak jumper that way? I'll speak jumper any way I want to. I'm your half-brother. I don't have a brother. There, you see. You're a half-wit. No, no, a quarter-wit. You're a dunce. No, half a dunce. Half a dunce? Don't mind if I do. Ah, <laughs> uh, by Ajax and Drano, the twin foaming gods of the sewer. This madman is splitting in two. We're going to have to stop him before he goes quad. I say... This good-looking halfwit over here is not a half-bad idea. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he's a man of some vision. He's told me how to get the people. Get the people? Get to the people. Oh! You have a vision to get to the people? Well, tell us your vision, Kaliuga. Television, 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 television. I... I shall build a tower. A tower of power. <laughs> what an eyeful! Oh, and I shall climb to the top and there, high on Caesar's needle, get the point? <laughs> I shall broadcast great networks across the seas, and I shall be seen and heard by everyone, everywhere at once. One voice, one image, one world, one umbra, one me. And one is nothing. What? How dare you give me such poor reception? Who is that? I, your ex-chief advisor, Bob Handeljob. <laughs> you! Ha-ha! You're just an egghead trying to scramble my vision. Ah, uh, 
Exactly, Kali Yuga. You poach the people's power and there's no gold left to lay another egg. The yolk's on you, you're cracked. <laughs> you silly goose. I'll lay anything I want. All hail, Kali Yuga. May I reign forever and ever and ever. We're and calling ever, your reign, ever, baby. And ever, and ever, and ever, your and game. Ever. Oh. <laughs> you dare to toss a salad on Caesar? <laughs> on the opera. Speak ketchup bottle for me. Oh, by the great god Heinz. <laughs> I bleed from 57 wounds. <laughs> Into Pluto. You, you lift your leg against me. <laughs> My wives will never get this clean. <laughs> We did! <laughs> He's no fun. <laughs> he fell right over. Oh, oh, but oh, 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 be not too cruel. Wind him gently in his winding sheet and carry him softly through the morning, evening streets and up the slippery steps of the artificial paranoid hill. And there atop, place three fake gold coins <laughs> upon the closed fountains of his eyes. Then lift him as high as he would like and dump the bozo over the cliff into the sewers he refused to repair while I prolong him to the Senate to declare that at last the rich and the powerful can speak for all the people. <laughs> Thank you. about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening until next time have a great week um that that last piece was actually from proctor and bergman who are half of the fire sign theater team from an old old album they did decades ago the piece is called the decline and fall of the roaming umpire by proctor and bergman and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. This podcast was brought to you by Goddard College Community Radio in Plainfield, Vermont. Thank you for listening. More information about supporting this and other community programs can be found at wgdr.org.